Greetings, Earthlings. Welcome to Satellite, Profile Theater's online supplementary magazine. Satellite is where you will come for interviews with artists, activists, and educators, and whoever else might give you a deeper understanding of the work that Profile puts on the stage, or in these troubled times, over the internet. At Profile Theater, we spend an entire season exploring the work of a given playwright. Our best artists help us see. And at Profile, each year, we use a different writer's unique perspective as a lens that helps us see our shared world in new and surprising ways. With Satellite, Profile is always looking for new avenues to deepen our audience's experience of the art, pulling back the curtain, providing insight, and giving our audience a glimpse of the act of creation. And now, welcome to Satellite. This month in Satellite, we are talking about the world of Lynn Nottage's Las Meninas, the true story of the illicit romance between Queen Marie Therese, wife of Louis XIV, and her African servant Nabo, a dwarf from Dahomey, and the hilarious consequences that scandalized the French court. We'll be in conversation with director Don Monique Williams about all the ways this play still resonates to the situation of black people today, to sound designer Matt Weens about how his unique approach to inspiration makes him an eclectic and fluid composer and the perfect designer for this piece. And right out of the gate, we'll be talking to the amazing Lauren Modica about her art and her hopes for the future of the American stage. Hi, I'm here with Lauren Modica, the famed Lauren Modica of Oregon Shakespeare Festival notoriety. Um, Lauren, welcome. Hello, Bobby. Thank you for having me. Of course, of course. It's a rare opportunity. We're so glad you joined us. Of course. Um, of course, we want to talk to you uh, about your work in um, Las Meninas. Um and so, uh, we, you know, we were just talk, talking before we came on. Um, you were talking about a rare opportunity this play was because... Because, so, the Nabu, who's who's sort of the main male character in the show, has dwarfism. And then the wonderful actor who played Nabu is Rance Nix, who, like myself, has achondroplastic dwarfism. And so, I don't know about Rance, but for me, this was a really special event because it was the first time that I'd ever done a show with another performer who had dwarfism. And it was, it was really like I was telling you, it was this sort of like magical kismet filled opportunity. I felt really lucky. And then one day I was thinking about it and I was like, Oh wow. It's an audio play. (laughs) So like, so there's this sort of like ironic, twist to it all, but I'm still super grateful for the opportunity and to, to share that with a, another individual. Yeah and, I, yeah, and I guess the like the irony comes from you would normally be in this play and that's what people would see. Right. And I think I think anyone who is a who has dealt with feeling like an other as a performer or a marginalized performer, someone who doesn't see a lot of representation of themselves or people who look like them, understands sometimes, whether it's because of race, gender, sexuality, um, disability, physical size, whatever, you know that feeling where you're like, oh, there can only be one of us in a production. (laughs) 
it's like, it's like, I think especially, you know, going back even as recently as two or three years ago, there was still very much that idea of like, we've got one person of color, we've got, you know, one, one person who could sort of fill this box and we're covered in terms of diversity. So... I think the next leap and what I hope is happening more often is that there's less of a fear of putting uh, people who would normally be considered diverse on the stage together at the same time, not making any sort of deal of it. And again, that covers all categories. But in this case, yeah, like two, two people with dwarfism, two people, you know, two professional actors who also happen to be... Uh, people of color and have dwarfism in the same show, a professional show done by a professional theater. And unfortunately, the audience doesn't get to quote unquote, see it. Right. Right. That's crazy. And it's, it's funny, you know, and I, and I feel like it's a, it's a hurdle that everybody has to jump. Right. Yeah. You know, um, just in uh, work that I've done in recent times you know like people bring up the question like you know uh think about trans people when you're thinking about blah 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 you know and um and just out of like habit i haven't you know and i'm like okay that is some place you need to work you know and and honestly like i mean you and i were just played husband and wife recently in a in a new play and you know what and it would be and it was like and that was like one of those things that i that i had to think about and be like oh right you know um yeah i think i think that's such a great example bobby because it's the idea of i think there's always been this this sense of like okay if we're going to use someone in a marginalized body we have to make sure that they're sort of like like that that's seen and for me one of the things that i love is like a role like what we just did in Yusuf's play where it's it's not mentioned it happens to be like a, a circumstance of me the performer of the person um but it's not it informs the part and you know in a staged version of that it would inform our relationship and our blocking and all of that but in the same way that it does in my relationships off stage right you know right. It, it wouldn't be like this giant like <laughs> target with an arrow on it being like, <laughs> being like we did it we did it here it is like like it's i think that's the next step yeah where it's mm-hmm. you stop thinking of and i'm so glad that you you were so vulnerable and saying like this is a place where i need i need to do the same work there are times where yeah. i'm like oh i have a huge blind spot or or it hasn't occurred to me or my mind doesn't immediately um you know, isn't as broad as I'd like when considering possibilities. And I think it's a humbling time for us all to really think about that and recognize those areas and, and broaden them, you know, do the work. Right. Cause I feel like a lot of times, uh, you know, um, when playwrights write plays, when artists read plays, you know, there's, there's a, there's a movie right. that they see in their head. And then if you don't like, um, immediately see that, you know, and before, I mean, it's like you were saying before, it would just be like, you know, um, and I generally hate when black actors would be like, I don't want to be seen as a black actor, I just want to be seen as an actor. Right. Um, but I get what they mean, you know, uh, it's like, but with this part, if it's just 
a steel worker. Oh, well, I, I can play a steel worker. Right. You know? Right. Right. You know? And I, I think you bring up a good point, which is that when we read something, this movie plays in our head. And I think that anyone who um, occupies many positions is sort of like a multi-hyphenate within theater, right? Like, so many of us are. Like, we write, we act, we produce, we direct, we sure. you know, fill in the blank here. And we have this wonderful loyalty to our friends, who are fellow performers, like we bring people in and we say, I'd love to work with this person. How can I do that? Where can I find? Um, and that's beautiful. I don't think that should stop. I do think that sometimes we as a community don't acknowledge that despite, I have like very few close friends of short stature who are also short statured. And I tell that to people and they're like, what? And I'm like, yeah. And then within that within that pool, if you asked me to say, okay, cast a play using, you know, using people of short stature, I'd be like, I've got one, not counting myself, you know? And people don't hmm. want to hear that. People don't necessarily, because it's acknowledging a really tricky uh, sort of dichotomy, right? Which is, which is a truth, but unfortunately has been yielded in a hurtful way towards all of us by people saying like, oh, you don't have enough experience or, oh, you're not ready or, oh, I don't know if we can trust that you... It's can- almost code, right? Right. It's- like, I don't... Yeah. I just don't know if you can... I mean, just real talk. I've been a professional actor for almost a decade. And by that, I mean working, paid, you know, like, that's my gig. I've been a professional equity actor for five years now in the union um i still still to this day by people who are well-meaning by people who don't i think have any sort of grudge or like vendetta against me are still like oh we just don't know if you're up for it like we just don't know if it's like how big of a risk is it to give you this responsibility and i say that not to shame them if anything, I hope that they maybe, if any of them were to listen to it for some reason, to understand that it's like, it's it's coded, but it's incredibly clear, you know? And, and I think that that goes for any marginalized performer. We're always sitting there going, no, we are ready. We have been ready. You give us these parts that other people wouldn't know what to do with. We kill it every time because we have no choice, because every time is the first and last time that you may be considering us, even if it's like the fifth opportunity you've given us. And we do it all with a smile and gratitude and professionalism. And so I get the danger in using that argument towards people who haven't had, you know, the same amount of experience because of those barriers, because of that very same expectation. But going back to what I was saying, the idea of like, okay, so here's one person who I know, A, likes to act, right? Beyond the assumption of like, well, every little person wants to be an actor, you know? And I'm like, no, I don't know. Like, sometimes I don't want to be an actor. Um, <laughs> like real talk sometimes i'm like florist time um and and so then you go okay so here's someone who likes to act here's someone who wants to act here's someone who has the schedule who has you know the desire who uh is down for the critique you know the the politics everything 
that sort of comes before all the fun stuff, which is like getting to act. Um, and then, and then you, you look and you go, well, I don't even know if I have one now. And I think that's changing with younger generations. A lot of the, uh, actors I know who have dwarfism are like in high school and they're incredible and they have resources and encouragement that makes me so happy. I think in the same way that like any actor of color feels that we're like, wow, what would this have been like? When we were 16. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Can you imagine, Bobby? Like, can you imagine being like 16 in 2020 and seeing people who look like you and your family and your friends <laughs> in every kind of role, in every kind of project, on stage, on TV, in film? And so that's my hope going forward with not just actors with dwarfism, but any actor with a physical, um, or neurodiverse actors, you know, anyone who has something that sets them apart from what is still, you know, considered the norm. But it's, it's hard, you know, it does take looking, it does take maybe adjusting larger visions for a project. And I still think sometimes theater doesn't want to do that. Oh, I, you know, I think it's a given. I think anybody listening to this is going to be like, oh, yeah, that's right. We have a problem with that. I mean, right. we, have a, we, we, we have a problem just not making every part pretty. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and I think, you know, I think it's so great that you're doing this interview because we've known each other for so long. And so I'm being so candid. I'm being so <laughs> candid, Bobby. But like... Going back to what I was saying, this idea of like, oh, you know, last year I had what was probably considered my first lead role in Portland, and it was Mary Bennett in Christmas at Pemberley. And it was hilarious to me because it's an ensemble show. I love ensemble shows. I'm not, you know what I mean? Like, it was not the traditional, like, here I am, I'm a prince, you know, like, look at me. Like, this this woman is an ugly duckling. She's awkward as hell. She's angry. She's, like, lovesick. <laughs> she's, she's like, obsessed with, with fir trees um, and maps. And so she definitely wasn't the traditional lead. And... I loved that and I was grateful for it. What was so interesting to me was there was like, again, going back to that idea of like, what what does it mean to see this person in this kind of role? And I'm like, this person is already an outcast. Like this role is already an outcast. This role is not meant to be like, everyone's, you know, America's sweetheart, Mary Bennett, the forgotten Bennett sister, who is she? You know, like, it's not, it shouldn't be that big of a risk, but it was still a risk. And I really remember thinking about it and being like, it shouldn't be a risk. It shouldn't be a risk in the same way that even if, you know, you wanted to put me or anyone else in a traditionally pretty role should be a risk. Because it all comes down to like, individual perception of a person, of a character. And we need to remember that as a field. We need to like sort of step outside the idea of like, no, I'm curating this because everyone's going to see this singular specific vision. And it's like, no, if you're in a 600 seat house, everyone in there should have a differing opinion. 
everyone should leave taking something different. If everyone's like, yep, that's exactly what it looks like. That's A plus. We're all on the same page. It's like fantastic. You've given a beautiful presentation, but have you inspired people to think about it? Have you inspired mm-hmm. people to really invest in it? Have you mm-hmm. inspired people to sit with this with their discomfort, like we talked about earlier? Um, so tell me about Las Meninas. How was it working on that project? How about that story? That was uh, so. It was my first audio play, and one of the things that I was saying. Uh, to in a Mercury Company meeting, actually, was the idea was referencing it and talking about how a lot of us aren't new to the world of theater and acting, but this current world of theater and acting is so new to us. So we're all beginners again by default, which is horrifying and thrilling, and I've loved it. So getting to work in a medium that was so familiar and yet so new was amazing. Um, I loved working with Don Monique Williams again. I loved working with Chris Murray again. Uh, the three of us did my last show in Portland before I left for OSF four years ago, five years ago. Uh, <laughs> I say that only because it's factual, Bobby, not because it's I'm true. Like, it's true. Hey, yeah, like it's, uh, I went to go see you. <laughs> uh, uh, we, so we did that and it was a wonderful reunion and then getting to work with Michael and Stacy and Rance and then uh, Claire and Crystal, who I'd never had the chance to work with here in town, was was awesome. But I loved it. And that story is fascinating. Um, I know that it, I may be wrong, but I believe that Lynn wrote it and it took 10 years before the first production of it was was staged. And then I believe that Rance, who's played the role twice before this time, uh, is the only actor with dwarfism to play it. And, And I think that's so incredible. And I have, like, all these questions for him about what that feels like uh, to to live in a story that is specifically written for someone who who could be you in another time um but it was it was wonderful it was it was so fun to get together every day with the same group of people and work and create and laugh laugh so hard Thank you, Lauren Madika, for your wisdom um, and your courage and your artistry. Aww. And I'm so happy for all the success that you've had. And Bye. I hope to keep see it keep going. And I think, I, I feel like you're totally a person that everybody in, in Portland theater is like, yeah, she's a badass. Oh, you know, so, thanks. I feel so like thank such, you. thank you. I feel like such the like weird friend of your mom's who's returned <laughs> and is like, hey guys. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm I like all my mom's weird friends. Yeah, quite I do. I love my mom's. None of them are weird. They're all just wonderful ladies. And but thank you so much for having me. It's such a all right. Yeah, it was a joy. Let's take a break, and we'll be right back with Matt Weens. I'm Treasure Lunan. You'll recognize my voice from Profile's first two audio plays, Mlamus Tale and Hot and Throbbing. I was delighted to get to work on not one, but two plays with Profile this year. Please, consider Profile Theater as you make your year-end giving plans. 
a gift of any size makes a huge difference in presenting stories that reflect all sides of humanity. Profile is a small but mighty organization that prioritizes paying artists. This fall alone, they paid $100,000 to more than 50 freelance artists like myself. In 2020, their plays and outreach programs reached almost 10,000 individuals, and their free community profile writing workshops by and for the LGBTQIA community and by and for Black women create space for over 120 participants to develop their own creative voices and build networks of resilience. Members and donors make this incredible community impact possible. When this pandemic ends, we will need arts organizations like Profile to be here for artists and audiences alike. Show up today. Donate at profiletheater.org slash support. And we are back with Matt Weens. Um, so I am here with Matt Weens. Matt, how are you doing today? I am doing fantastic. All things Great. considered. So, uh, Matt, I first met you working on Water by the Spoonful. What was that? Three years ago now? Something that like was that? maybe like four, yeah, four, four and a half years ago. Was it that long ago? No way. Because that okay. would have been, I mean, that would have been late 2015, early 2016. Is that right? Yeah. Whew, don't get older, Matt. <laughs> Um, and, uh, you've been working pretty consistently in Portland, I think since then. Um, but you're not a native of Portland. You are a California native. That so is. how did you find your way here in the world of sound design? Uh, well, I was living on the East coast with my family and doing, uh, not too much theater related stuff, mostly film related stuff from film school, uh, and graduate school. Uh, and we, I mean, I grew up in California, so I'm familiar with the West Coast, but we had a little tiny apartment and then two young boys, and it just seemed like it was uh, time to go to a different city. Uh, and Portland was on the top of our list just because we had a bunch of people that we knew here, uh, family, friends. Uh, so we packed all our stuff up and drove out here. Can I ask, was it tough to go away from the film money to nonprofit theater money in Portland, Oregon, of all places? No, the film money was not that great. <laughs> okay. I, well. I, 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 it, yeah. No. Uh, you may not know this about me as well. I also have a, a business that I run, which is a tutoring business for high school students. So I, oh, sweet. I go back and forth between sound work and mostly high school students for academic math, English, standardized tests, all that stuff. Uh, a lot of my clients are still on the East Coast. Uh, but I have some in Portland now. But that's what I go back and forth between. Sure. I bet keeping those East Coast clients is relatively easier in this time of COVID. Yeah. So when I moved out here, I used to meet with students in person. But when I moved out here, I transitioned already to everything online. Uh, so that's not, it wasn't a particularly difficult transition, at least this year. And you said you were an actor for 20 years? <laughs> I was maybe say 15. <laughs> That's still a good long time. I went, uh, after college, I went to Actors Theater of Louisville as an apprentice. And I was no there kidding. for a year. And then I moved with a bunch of people to New York and was in the independent, you know, theater festival year round doing this and that and the other thing in theater. 
but it was never sound at that point. Like I said, those two worlds for me, even though I was always super into music, uh, didn't really cross my mind to combine, to combine them for whatever reason. And uh, how do you like being a sound designer versus being an actor? Oh, it's so much better. <laughs> is that right? Why? Um, for me. Uh, sure. For me, it is. Uh, I don't know. Uh, the process of uh, constantly auditioning, constantly being <laughs> rejected can get, you know, a little tiresome after a while. And what I realized, and I mean, you know this about me too, I'm not a super talkative person. I like to listen and survey and and like be hyper specific with the with the sounds and whatever that I'm bringing to a play. I don't know. Just as I've gotten older, it has it's I've become more suited to it. I think I think hmm. yeah. for me anyway, mm -hmm. acting was a was a young person's endeavor. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, do you have some music that you'd want to share with us today? So just a little bit of, about these. All these are super short. Uh, I, I, I put them up on my website if you're interested, but they're just like little snippets or little vignettes of ideas. Uh, so about 20 to 30 seconds song. Um, What's your website? Uh, mostly right now I just put stuff up on SoundCloud, soundcloud.com backslash, and then my name, Matt Weens. We'll take you there <laughs> if, you, if you're interested. Uh, but so my, so let me just, here, I'll just play this one here. Wow, that's great. That doesn't sound anything like, you said you played piano and what else? Uh, saxophone. I mean, I play right. guitar and most wind instruments, maybe not brass, but some strings. Um, so that is me playing, but I'm, I'm playing on a piano for most of those instruments. Is that right? Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit more about how you came up with the sound for uh, Claudia? Um, yeah, so like for instance, the, the name of that one there is Wuhan Spring because that was the intro to that particular scene that we were doing. Um, and I guess what I do for most things that and this most recent project as well is I don't, I have an idea of what I want, but I don't want to listen to too much stuff because I don't want to, because stuff gets stuck in my head and then I end up accidentally like, you know, copying it or <laughs> getting too close to something else. So if I have an idea, I, I like to, you know, do a little bit of research and then maybe just listen to like 10 or 15 seconds of something that is like the right genre or the right sound for me. And then I try not to listen to it again. I have it there if I want to go back to it, but just like a snippet. And then from that, whatever that means to me is what eventually comes out. So it all kind of filters itself through my sensibility. So for example, this was coming in to a scene in Milan and Josh had asked for something that was more like uh, Italian opery. Uh, and, but I wanted something simple and, and clean. And so I knew I was going to play on the piano. So I just looked up, you know, Googled some Italian opera and then listened to it for just a second. And then this is what comes out in terms of the chord changes when I play it. So here it goes.
Wow, man, you uh, you have really. Does that allow for you to be like really eclectic in your musical influences? That kind of approach. Sure. Ho hopefully, uh, hopefully, yeah, it allows me to like shape shift a little bit depending on what the the project uh, requires. And most of these things, I'm also like that one in particular. I'm playing and composing it as I'm listening to the audio because you know it's a, for a specific amount of time that is underscored. Um, which is again why huh. a lot of these are so in between 20 and 30 seconds because either they fade out a lot of these end. Um, but yeah. Is there a big difference between designing for theater and designing for film? Um, yeah, I would, I would say there's, there's less, certainly less underscoring in theater. Although Josh is a, is a big fan of it, which is something that I'm super attracted to because it kind of brings those two things a little bit closer together where you, I don't know that you would typically have a whole scene in theater with, with slight underscoring that is like punctuating the uh, emotional uh, high points. Uh, but sometimes, uh, and so none of these that I have here to play are that long, but sometimes, yeah, I'll have a piece that, that grows and ebbs and flows for over like three to five minutes. Um, and that's super cool too. Uh, I think that's more common in like short films and stuff like right, that. Right. Sure. So tell me about Las Meninas. What was your approach to Las Meninas like? Uh, well, it, it takes place in the mid 17th century. So like I said, probably the first thing I did was maybe Google some Baroque music there from like 1600 to 1750. And it takes place in the court. Um, and I, I, I didn't want it to be a whole, whole symphony of Baroque music, just, you know, the harpsichord was obviously going to be in there and a few other, the lute and a few other uh, Baroque instruments. And from that, then I tried not to listen to those little influences again and then see what happened. <laughs> um, so like a harpsichord, uh, I mean, I feel like, did you have one lying around your house or did you have like, is that like a harpsichord app or something? What uh, yeah, again, so I can play all these things on my keyboard, but I, I just have samples from, from a harpsichord or a lute or whichever things I need. If I can, it's, it's ideal to play them live, uh, but I also often don't have time to do that. Like the turnaround time is, is pretty quickly. So in terms of being able to record live instruments and then like futz with it a ton, is not super easy. So in order to work a little quicker, right, I would use these samples so you want to hear what this sounds like here yeah please this is this is maybe one of the first things i composed for las meninas So, so um, Las Meninas, and like you're saying, like you're composing for harpsichord and lute, and then the play is kind of this like strange mixture of you know comedy with these really kind of like dark events that happen. Um, right. and it's really a brutal, tragic story at the heart of it. Um, right. How was how like like what was it like uh, trying to get that alchemy just right? Well, so I think there were there were two basic things 
that we toggled between. And one was that kind of, I guess, sprightly kind of music, almost festive uh, for the for the court scenes. And then when we are transitioning into the convent where she is being kept and it's cold and dark and wet, uh, or where there are scenes where they're in they're in danger. Uh, then I reverted to uh, just actually some long low strings underscoring like you like yeah like you might see uh, in a film uh, and used uh, the harp a little bit the orchestral harp um, up at the top um, but yeah just some foreboding tones along the bottom there to to let us know that we're in a in a different in a different place in a different mood uh, dramatically. Well, Matt Weens, um, thanks so much for your time and for your art and your talent. Um, and for, you know, just, just talk to me about how the sausage gets made. <laughs> that's it. That's how, that's how it gets made. <laughs> All right, Matt. Thanks a lot. You're very welcome. Thanks. And for I'm sure me. I will see you around on the flip side. Yes, hopefully. All right. Peace. All right, let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back with none other than Dawn Monique Williams. Hot and throbbing. There are two worlds in this story. Reality, constructed as we know it, and a world that sometimes resembles the real, as we fantasize about it. in control. Control of her body. Control of her thoughts. Control of him. And she would make him wait. Make him beg. Sounds too male bashing. Make him ask? Fuck it. Make him beg. Make them both beg. Mom! Where's your eyeliner? On the top shelf next to the Ben Gay. Hot and Throbbing by Paula Vogel, directed by Jamie M. Ray, is available for streaming November 4th, 2020 to June 20th, 2021 to members and non-members at Profile Theater On Air. Learn more and listen at profiletheater.org. This is Satellite, and we are back with Dawn Monique Williams. Great, and I am here with Dawn Monique Williams. This is not your first trip with uh, Profile Theater. This is a return engagement for you, yes? Yes, it is. Um, I first did the um, Antigone Project as part of the fall festival. Oh, my goodness. I don't even remember what year that was. 2016 and then um and then in 2018 i was there and did the secretaries right on right on well we want to thank you so much for returning and don you are located you're home based at i my home base is oakland california um which is where i was born and raised and um after six seasons at the oregon shakespeare festival in ashland when my daughter graduated high school um i moved back home Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, so t- 
tell me about Las Meninas. Kind of a strange little play about a strange little relationship. It is a strange little play, um, and and so delightful and um, and heartbreaking and very funny. Um, I think for me, the thing that makes it the strangest is the conjecture, right? That that it could be rooted in in some truth that there was this um, black nun at the convent of Murray um, who was supported by an annual um, allowance from the king. Um, and, you know, it's rumored that she was the illegitimate child of the queen and her sort of companion at court who was an African man who had dwarfism. And while the the truth or the documentary history of this is, is not proven, the fact that Lynn Nottage um, made a choice to kind of explore this in a play uh, is really kind of great, um, I think, in terms of a, a creation myth, a story for, for how this um, Black woman ended up a nun and Paris supported by the by the monarchy um and also just to sort of explore you know what it what it meant for you know African people at court I think is is also a kind of uh phenomenon in the play um tell me uh are there ramifications you think that this play has for black people living among white people today um I do you know what one thing that I've always sort of been fascinated with is um, is the trope of the tragic mulatto, and uh, I feel like here Lynn subverts it a little, but she doesn't do away with it. I mean, we still have uh, our sort of leading character Louise, who guides us through the story, is still the product of uh, interracial relationship um, that essentially costs. Um, the participants, their lives, um, in one sense, quite literally, but but in another sense, you know, the queen is sort of, um, you know, um, obscured in, in history and kind of cast off. And then and then the nun story is definitely sort of lost to time. And I I think, especially in this cultural moment we find ourselves in right now, um, in the light of everybody being sheltered in place and the many manifestos that are happening regionally and certainly sort of uh, f following in the vein of the We See You White American Theater, um, where, where people are hopefully investigating the stories they've been telling and seek to tell new stories, we realize that... Um, that what we think in terms of historical accuracy or what the classical canon or all these these sort of eurocentric ideas here lynn has given us a play that that tells us quite clearly that that black people existed <laughs> at that time um that historically um uh black folk have always been part of the mix um that that there's always been a a, a global ecology um even in europe um 
if I have felt for a very long time that Lynn, all of Lynn's stories are an affirmation that Black Lives Matter. So to sort of pick these Black Lives out of obscurity long before there was a, a slogan or catchphrase or hashtag, um, I think certainly has resonance in this um, in this contemporary moment where we can like reaffirm the persistence um, of Black people through throughout history and their location in a great many of stories. Um, and just a reminder that theaters sort of really have no excuse to not um, be telling the stories of um, BIPOC lives and journeys, um, but certainly Black ones. And the added layer that she's written this character who has the condition of dwarfism also reminds us right now in this moment um, how um, pertinent and important representation is. Um, and that's the, that's the sort of one downside to this being an audio drama is that the audience um, doesn't get to see that, but we certainly um, cast um, an actor in that role who does have the condition of dwarfism, um, but but we also had other actors in the cast who um, who also have the condition of dwarfism and um, and other you know things that that speak to the ne the necessity of representation um, in the theater. So I do wish um, for that reason that this this is a cast that people could have a visual experience of. But even without that, certainly knowing that there's um, a multitude to the lived experience of, um, of black folk, disabled folk, people whose bodies are different than the sort of um, thin, able-bodied <laughs> people that dominate so much of our Western canon. You know, we, t you know, I remember um, uh, talking to a, a young brother, he was talking about how Afri African-Americans a lot of times um, either either deliberately or unconsciously look down on Africans for not having all the stuff that we have. And that he found that Africans look down on African-Americans, not the look down on African-Americans, but like, you know, felt sorry for us because we were so disconnected from our history. Yes. You know, like, like we didn't know who we were in this land. And um, I think Nabo is a good example of somebody who does know who he is and is trying to get back to that, you know, Yes. Um. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. The diaspora wars are very, very real in the culture. And sometimes it's a little disheartening that um, that all of us from the African diaspora would um, would dig at each other over the sort of new nuance of culture rather than celebrate that, you know, right. um, this whole um, movement that we have right now. Um, you know, uh, the the ADOS movement, American Descendants of Slaves, um, which I I am one. And so I certainly understand the sentiment um, and that we have a sort of um, unique lived experience in the United States, for sure. Um, but but it it doesn't feel right to me that then we would say that um, our other African brethren um, don't understand Juneteenth, you know, because you know, looking at the place specifically, it's not set in the United States. It's set. It's set in France, and um, and Nabo is not 
uh, necessarily um, enslaved in the way that we would look at the history of chattel slavery in the United States, but but he is enslaved, right? He's it's human trafficking, right? He has been bought and sold and shipped in a box, shipped in a box, and yeah. you know, and he says, "Am I expected to perform day and night?" You know, he is expected to sing for them or dance for them or tell them stories or tell jokes. Um, so while the play doesn't conjure the images, you know, of of somebody, you know, being whipped or somebody in chains, um, he is not autonomous, though, though Nabo, to your great point, uh, understands himself as a sovereign autonomous being. But the circumstances don't allow for him to have that agency. Um, and so it so it is sort of like um, another fascinating angle of the story that Lynn doesn't lean into, you know, like an American slave narrative. She but but look at the similarities, look at what it means for this African man to be in a foreign country and not have agency over his life and what it also means for this Spanish woman to be in a foreign country and not have agency over her life, even though she's of royal blood and and how that circumstance is ultimately what brings these two people um, together um, in a very problematic romance, of course, because it's a little bit trauma bonding. But um, but certainly that is a theme that's being explored is is what it means to not have agency, even though both of these characters um, understand themselves as um as autonomous and as powerful but they don't have any sort of like positional power to um to be be free right uh it really strikes you as a a play among outcasts it's like uh two birds in gilded cages yes you know but there's there's still cages absolutely um uh something you said oh uh because when I remember reading that line about we have to perform all day and all night and thinking about how much like a, a common trope when you grow up black is that uh, white people love black culture, but they don't love black people. Yes. You know, and um, and Debo, I mean, and Debo is kind of in very much in like that circumstance where they're not, you know, they're not interested in him as this fully realized human being. They're interested in, in him as this companion, this fool for this woman. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So much so that that Louise has no understanding of herself as a black woman because black is such a, a negative thing that she doesn't have an understanding of herself in that way, in the way that people regard, um, you know, Africans at that time. She doesn't even recognize that in herself, which is another clever, fascinating thing that Lynn has written into this play, um, which is, I hope, um, maybe we'll, we'll get a resurgence of productions because it is sort of grossly underproduced despite containing all this richness that we're discussing, you know, having all these themes that are so of the moment, um, probably because it's a, French period piece and the costume, <laughs> Co costume, right. cost too much to produce for all those costumes. And then something that I discussed with the 
with the costume designer because there was a costume designer for this for this project, even though it won't be fully staged, was how the costumes, how the color stories of the costumes could move from a very kind of um, diachromatic, you know, white, black, a sort of like blank canvas world. And as Nabo is introduced, um, we start to introduce color into the world. So this opening scene where um, Louis and the queen are sitting for their portrait, it's it's almost like replicating that where the portrait is just this initial outline, just just the the black lines and the and the white canvas. But with Nabo, um, you start to get color in this world. The world starts to come alive. Certainly the queen starts to come alive. And as we return to these moments of the painter finishing this portrait, we start to see the portrait get get color as the portrait nears completion. So that's something that Bobby and I had talked about. Um, Bobby, the designer, costume designer, had talked about that I would love to... I mean, it would be so expensive, but it's something I would love to achieve um, in a real production because it's a memory play. And so as Louise starts to have a greater understanding of herself through the introduction of Nabo, through the realization that Nabo is her father, we see this world go from one that is just black and white to one that is full and rich um, in color and textile. So that's definitely a, an approach I would love to to take if we were to to do it in space for, you know, for a viewing audience. Cool. Don, we just have a couple more minutes. Uh, how was it directing a show for on, as an audio play? Um, you know, it was great fun. It has its challenges because I'm so yeah, much a, like a visual storyteller. I'm so much into like composition and movement. Um, so that, so having that part removed, that's a little hard because already my mind is like, oh my goodness, and we did it and they could do this and da da da. We would stage it like this. Um, but at the same time, there was also sort of um a, a, a an ease in that we really could focus on the text. Like it really felt like an, a luxurious opportunity to do um, table work, <laughs> like to just do endless table work and really just focus on the text and how to make the text sing and how to bring Lynn's language to life. Um, uh, and so that oral aspect of it to really be able to be in the music of the script um, right. was really delightful without the pressure of, okay, well, we better get up on our feet now or we're not going to be ready by tech. You know, that that part, yep. that part wasn't yep. um, in the equation at all. Well, great. Don Monique Williams, thank you so much for your time. You've been wonderful. Oh, thank you, Bobby. It's my pleasure. Absolutely. And success in all your endeavors. Oh, thank you. Thanks. All right, that's a wrap. I want to give a hearty thank you to the Don Monique Williams, the Matt Weens, and the Lauren Modica. The audio engineer for Satellite is Robert A.K. Gaino, and the line producer is Jamie M. Ray. And for the most part, because of COVID, this was recorded at Studio de Bermea, which is located in Portland, Oregon on the traditional lands of Multnomah, Kathlamet, Clackamas, Tumwater, and Malala bands of the Chinook peoples, the Tualatin band of the Kalapuya peoples, and many other tribes who made their homes along the Columbia River. We acknowledge and honor the ancestors and survivors of this place and recognize that we are here because of the sacrifices forced upon them, and we honor their descendants who live on. That is it for Satellite. One love and peace out. <laughs>